The past week or so has been an eventful week in the house uh, of the Wallachers. We have had two birthdays. My wife and I both had birthdays in the past week or so. Um, and you notice as you get older that things are missing from your birthdays. Um, there's less cake. Uh, there are less presents. Uh, all of that is probably good. But there's also less anticipation. As a child, birthdays and Christmas are the stuff. And I, I remember as a child waiting for Christmas to come. I, December, the first three weeks of December are the longest three weeks of any year. Uh, and somehow God had pulled 24 hours into being 48 and sometimes 56 and 72. Like it was just an immensely long time to wait for Christmas to come. And I remember getting gifts. I remember certain gifts very vividly receiving as a child. I remember I got this little electric football game, um, which wasn't a video game. It was literally just a sheet of aluminum that vibrated, right? And guys were supposed to move on it, but all they did was twirl around in circles. It was a lot of fun. And the quarterback had this little foam football, and he would launch it between here and Claire, right? So, like, it, the football just traveled forever. And it was a worthless game, but I got hours of energy. Like, I remember certain gifts but the one thing that I remember the most from Christmas and, and the events leading up to Christmas are not the gifts so much as my impatience in waiting for that day to come. I remember the feeling of sitting on the edge of my seat waiting for these things to happen. Uh, needless to say, that doesn't happen as much today. Uh, it just is part of growing up. But as a kid, I remember that sense of anticipation every time that something important was coming up, the end of school or Christmas or my birthday. I can only imagine then what it would have been like to have been the people of Israel. These people who hadn't waited for three weeks for the events that we're reading about to unfold, but they have been waiting for decades for these events to unfold. They have watched as their parents' generation has died in the wilderness. They have waited patiently as they have taken the promised land that God has promised to give to them. We've had several people who have been out on vacation, and, and as they've come back, I, I've asked them how their vacations are. And this is sort of universal. They say, well, it was nice. I had a, had a good time, but it's always good to be home. There's something about being in your house around your stuff and laying in your bed. There's always something good about that. And imagine what it's like for the Israelites who have never had that. They've never been home. They've been a wandering nomadic people without a home or a land to call their own. As a matter of fact, the lands that they were wandering were specifically called not their land. That isn't where they were to live. They didn't know what it was like to even own land. They didn't know what it was like to have their own cattle grazing on their own land or to raise their own crops. The only thing they had ever harvested was manna. I imagine the anticipation of these events were just unbelievable. They waited for 40 years. Some of them had only known waiting in their lives, pointed directly at this as they wandered around the wilderness. Finally, now we have the realization of God's promises. We ourselves know much about the promises of God. We have experienced them in various and sundry ways. It is instructive to us then to look at these passages in Joshua, beginning in Joshua 10, 29, and to read about how Joshua and the rest of the people of Israel responded to this actualization of God's promises. How is it that they responded to these things? We find first that God's promises require work. God's promises require work. Read with me, beginning in chapter 10, we'll begin reading in verse 40. 
The beginning of chapter 10 from verses 29 through 39 is a re sort of capitulation of the conquest of southern Canaan, and this is the summary of those victories. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country, and the Negev, and the lowland, and the slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time, because the Lord, of, the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. Chapter 11 then recounts the victories in the same way that chapter 10 does of northern Canaan, and the summary of those victories occurs in verse 16 and following, if you would read those with me. So Joshua took all that land, and the hill country, and all the Negev, and all the land of Goshen, and the lowland, and the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel, and its lowland, from Mount Helek, which rises towards Sire, as far as Baal God, and the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings, and struck them, and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts as they should come against, that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. Sometimes when we read summaries like that, we can be sort of brought into the sense that those victories, as they're listed and listed and listed, and the summaries that are given come so quickly, that the victories that happened happened almost as quickly as we could read them. Because we've had such an elongated time of looking at the Battle of Jericho and the Battle of Ai, we've, we've sort of inspected those things in detail as you read through the book of Joshua when you come to this part, and all of a sudden they're just sort of collapsed in. It's easy to think that these things happened over the course of weeks but verse 18 of chapter 11 is very clear. Joshua made war a long time with those kings. This was not something that happened overnight. Joshua, who was himself an elderly man here, daily had to put himself toward the things that make for making war. He had to deal with logistics. He had to deal with troop preparation. He had to deal with battle plans. He had to deal with traveling from one city to the next. As you read, all of that area needed to be conquered. He had to deal with encouraging his officers. He had to deal with fighting itself. He had to deal with the helping of those who were slain, the burying of them, the healing of those who were sick and ill. He had to deal with all of this day after day after day, year after year after year. Do not get in your mind that simply because we have these nice summaries and because the word of God very briefly goes over these battles, that these battles happened quickly. They didn't. It required an immense amount of work from Joshua. It required an immense amount of work from the people of Israel. Sometimes we look at this like Joshua is some kind of Bruce Lee character with 10 people around him, and before you know it, there's kicks and punches being thrown and 10 bodies strewn around him and only Joshua standing there. And that's not how it happened. It was slow. It was methodical. It was a daily grind. And yet God was faithful to them. God's promises required work. We have a, a sort of trite saying, which is true in certain senses, as most trite sayings happen to be, 
that we are to let go and let God. And there's good in that. We are, surely, when it comes to some of the promises, to not think that we are to ever work to make God's promises true. So we are given forgiveness of sins on the cross. We are given redemption. We are given the Holy Spirit. We are given new lives. All of this is outside of anything that we ourselves have done. It is a gift of God by grace through faith. That is not of yourselves. But that doesn't mean that everything works that way. And we can be the kind of people who think of the promises of God as though God is simply going to make them happen when it's clear that God had promised them the land, but also requires out of them much work to make those things happen. Your holiness is one of those things. Does God save you and forgive your sins? Yes, that is all the work of God through Christ. That has nothing to do with you. But that while it gives you holiness before God, does not make you holier here on earth. That is something that you work for, you strive for, and you labor for. Paul says this when he, he's talking about everyone who has visibly seen the risen Christ, what makes him an apostle. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 9, he says this, I am the least of the apostles, that Christ appeared to him last, he says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. He says, I was unworthy because of the life that I lived. And when he says I worked harder, that means that he worked harder not only to preach the gospel, but clearly because he's talking about what he is in his own being. He's talking about the kind of man he is. As he writes to the Corinthians that day, comparing it to the kind of man he was, he says, I labored, guys. This didn't just happen. I didn't just wake up. There was this Damascus event that happened to Paul, a conversion that was unlike anything that likely would ever happen to you or anyone that you would ever know. God miraculously appeared to him in a vision and changed his life forever. And even with that, he says emphatically, I worked harder than any of them to become what I am today. While God worked with him, he worked as well. The promise of God that you will be a holy people requires work. Even our prayer lives require work. When we study prayer in there, this doesn't come simply because God has changed your heart and all of a sudden now all you want to do is effusively pray to God. It is work. He calls you to work. The Lord himself gave a parable like this in Luke 18. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For, while he, for a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This widow 
continually goes back, continually goes back. And the face of a judge who cares nothing for her and pesters him until he gives her what she wants. This is work. Yes, God does promise things. And yes, God does make those happen on his own. But quite often, quite often, God wants his promises to be made sure to us through our work. Secondly, God's promises reject meaninglessness. God's promises reject meaninglessness. When you read through Joshua, you are finding that everywhere you turn, this is an important event. There's no sense in which anything that we read in Joshua has a sense of flippancy. Everything that Joshua is doing here seems to have a great gravitas to it. As you read from Genesis 12 on through the rest of the Pentateuch, it's clear that this is the event that all of the rest of that was looking forward to. From Genesis to Exodus, to Leviticus, to Numbers, and through Deuteronomy, all of those books, the great founding documents of Israelite life, were all looking forward to these events. They were incredibly meaningful because in the book of Genesis and throughout the rest, God had continually made promises to his people that they not only would be made multiple, that they not would only be as numerous as the stars of the sky and like the dust of the earth, but he said, I will give you a land. It is the promise that provides meaning for what Joshua is doing. When I was reading through this and and thinking about it, I couldn't help but think of our study through the book of Ecclesiastes. It is a beautifully pessimistic book. It's difficult because it's just so tired of life. In Ecclesiastes 2, 9 through 11, I think these are good summary verses of what happens in the book of Ecclesiastes. The writer, the teacher says, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart, I kept from my heart no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for having all my toil. Then I considered all my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, it was all vanity and a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. The book of Ecclesiastes goes back and forth time and time again about the goodness of work. And what I think is going on, and I could be wrong on this, but what I think is going on is he's perfectly fine working. He thinks that toil is good. He thinks that labor is good and work is good. If you keep your head down and you till your garden, if you keep your head down and you make your little machines, if you keep your head down and you make your little sermons, everything is fine. Just keep your head down and keep working and be joyous in that. But don't you dare pick your head up and start asking, why am I doing this? Because the second you pick your head up and you take a breath and you say, what is the meaning behind all of this? Why am I making transmissions for Ford? Why am I making sermons every week? Why do I clean this? Why do I write this? Why do I do this? The second you start to ask those questions, he says, you find out that every inch of your work, every little thing that you've ever done is nothing but meaninglessness. He attributes this to death. He says they looked up and everywhere he turns, there's death. He's going to die, he says directly after this, and all the work that he expended, you know who that's going to go to? His doofus of a son. And who knows how he's going to handle stuff. He says it's meaningless and a striving after the wind. It is easy for us to feel like that. 
But the truth is that we don't live in Ecclesiastes' world. We live in a world that is inhabited by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so our work is not meaningless. The promise that has come to us means that our work doesn't suffer from that. We can pick our heads up from our labor, and we can ask, what is the good in this? And he had a very firm answer. There is much good in this. Every time we think that our striving for holiness that we've talked about has fallen flat, we look at our lives and we are, are not the holy people that we want to be. We look at our sin, we look at how we have lived in our lives, those words that we spoke to somebody in anger, the attitudes that we've had, how we've turned a blind shoulder or a blind eye to people in need, how we continually reject to do that which is good and act selflessly selfishly in our lives, we can begin to doubt the work of God and all of our work for holiness. And we can think this is just worthless. It's meaningless. I'm not getting anywhere. But that isn't the attitude of one who knows the resurrection and the power of Christ. Paul writes in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. There is an assurance in the promise of God that your work for holiness is not in vain. No matter how much you look at your life and you see that you are not achieving what you want to achieve, you're not the person, as Paul says, I am who I am. When you say, I am who I am, and I don't really like it, I'm not the kind of person that I want to be. Paul comes back and says, yeah, but the promises of God are saying that your work isn't in vain. As you strive to become holier, Christ is working in you by grace to make you holy. You think that all the time that you've spent encouraging people, encouraging them out of sin, encouraging them to live lives of holiness, encouraging them to attend church, to know Jesus Christ, as you evangelize them, simply encouraging people in the church to live better lives, to study scripture, to know scripture better, to read better books, all of those encouragements that you give continue to fall on deaf ears. You wonder if you are doing any good. Why even expend the energy to try and encourage people when all they're going to do is reject you specifically, not just when it's generally to people, but when it's to one specific person? Why continue to preach the gospel to them? Why continue to be kind to them? Why continue to pour yourself out to them if all you're going to get is rejection? But again, we know that God's promises are there to make our work meaningful. 1 Peter 4.8 Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. God says that your love for others, your encouragement of others, your working hard for other people, it's never in vain, it's never meaningless, it's never worthless, but it matters before God. God's promises reject meaninglessness. Third, God's promises reinforce courage. God's promises reinforce courage. Joshua 11, beginning in verse 21. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir and Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land, 
according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. God's promise reinforces courage. Not too long ago, um, Bree and I got a chance to go see Dunkirk, which is a fantastic movie. Dunkirk is the story of 400,000 or so English soldiers who at the very beginning of World War II were stuck on a beach in France, which doesn't sound horrible until you realize the German troops were right there and about to surround them and to just cut them off. And made even worse was that you know, England is almost, almost visible from that beach. You can almost see home. You can almost see safety, but they can't get there. It's a story about the people of England, as World War II stories kind of go, and their bravery, their willingness to get in their own boats and come and pick up these soldiers. It's a beautiful story, but there is a really thin line between bravery and foolishness. Because I guarantee you, if the German soldiers had actually broken through the French lines and they had wiped out not only the 400,000 soldiers that were on that beach, but also the armada of personally owned boats that came over, it wouldn't have been seen as bravery. It would have been seen in the history and annals of, of our understanding as nothing but stupidity. There's a thin line between these two things. But when God promises things to us, our acting upon those promises is never foolishness, but it's courage and bravery. Listen, the Anakim are important here. Back in Numbers 13, as the spies went into the land, the spies who rejected the land and made other people reject the land and the taking of the land originally from Kadesh Barnea, we read this in Numbers 13, 33 through 14, 1. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, and hence Anakim, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And so we saw these giant people. They were huge. Not only does this land have fortified cities, yeah, yeah, it's good. You can farm there, it's good for cattle, but they've got fortified cities there. And then this is really, it seems to be the kicker. This is what makes the people's heart melt the most. There are giants in the land. There are these huge people called the Anakim or the Nephilim. People then reject the calling of God to go into the land. They reject his promises. It's incredibly interesting as much emphasis is put on the Anakim in the book of Numbers. The book of Joshua sort of blows them away in a verse. Joshua destroyed them. He went up against them. It was no big deal. It wasn't even as much as the battle of Ai. He, he wiped them out. We get no indication as to how he did. No indication as to how God worked through him. There weren't hailstones that came down to destroy these giants that Joshua couldn't handle. It simply wiped away. Almost as a passing comment, the Anakim are gone. What the people lacked was a true understanding of what God's promise meant for them. And now that Joshua has it, he is courageous to go into battle, to do what God has called him to do. He is courageous. 
without the promise of God, without trusting in the promise of God or really understanding the promise of God, you will always, always fail in your courage to do what God has called you to do. A good case study for this is the person of Peter. In John 18, we read the following, beginning in verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. This is the night that Jesus was betrayed, and he will be crucified the next day. Since that disciple, that is John, was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl. So notice how many times they're talking about a servant girl. It could have just said servant, but he's going out of his way to make sure you know this is a servant girl. It's not a servant woman. You ought not think of this person as Helga of the North, who stands with a mace there, ready to take people down. It's a servant girl, right? So the servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing warming themselves. And Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. One little question from a little girl. Are, are you with this Jesus guy? No, no, absolutely not. And we are very hard on Peter quite often, probably unrealistically hard on Peter. Peter oftentimes did silly things, but he did silly things boldly, and he did silly things because he was actually the leader of the disciples. The rest of the disciples would have done those silly things as well, but he was the only one who had the courage to actually say what they were thinking or to do what they should have done. You have to put yourself in Peter's shoes. The, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus were not clear events for the disciples. Every single one of them was confused by what was going on. Otherwise, they would have hastened this day. If they had known that this was going to be their salvation, they would have probably asked, even knowing and loving Jesus, for it to come sooner than it did. Peter had seen Jesus transformed on a mountain. He had seen him heal people. Miraculously, hands built back from nothing, blind people being able to see the dead raised. They thought he was the Messiah. To see him being led away, to be crucified, would have thrown into total chaos everything that Peter thought his life meant. He didn't know what he stood for anymore. He had no foundation. He had no solid ground. The promises of God were now fuzzy and odd to him. So all the more important then is what happens to Peter when that's not the case. After the death and the resurrection of Christ, we have Peter, not the bumbling, courageouslessness sort of disciple that we have earlier. He is not fearful of people anymore. Precisely because the promise has been made true and the promise is clearly demonstrated as true. Peter has healed someone, Peter and John did, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the leaders of Israel have come to them in the book of Acts and they've said, what is going on here? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts for chapter 8 says to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, but by the name of Christ Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, 
by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no under name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They warned them then to not say the name of Jesus anymore, to not preach in his name. They, of course, go away and come back and do that very same thing. The council then that gathers to deal with them realizes they don't have much in the way of leverage here. And so in 541, they say that Peter, John, and the rest of the apostles left the presence of the council rejoicing Not that they were let go, but because they were let go, they were beaten and mocked. And now they've been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus Christ. That is not a man who lacks courage. That is somebody who's seeing the promise of God being fulfilled, is willing to go in front of the very people who control his life and he can put an end to it and is willing to look at them and say, you crucified him, you killed him, but I'm telling you, there is salvation in no one else. God's promises reinforce courage in us, just like it did in Peter. Listen, we are pushing for evangelism in our community groups to, so that we might be able to better preach the gospel to the nations, not only to fund people to do that, but so that we as a church can better do that. And it can be just overwhelming at times. So friend, trust in the promises of God. Trust in that. And build your courage up through that. That Christ has said the fields are white under the harvest. Go out there and reap. Trust that promise. He said he will be with you. You don't have to worry about what men say. As Paul says, I'm not a pleaser of men, but a pleaser of God. Take courage in the fact that God's promise is that he will make disciples out of every people, tribe, tongue, and nation, and language. Go out and do the work of an evangelist. Go out and do what God has called you to do in making disciples of the nations. Do this, not out of your own strength, not out of your own power, but because God's promises have made you courageous. And finally, God's promises remain sure. God's promises remain sure. In Joshua chapter 12, we have a recounting of all of the kings defeated by both Moses and Joshua. And the middle portion of the section that deals with Joshua starts to have this sort of repetitive theme to it. We can pick up in verse 9, the king of Jericho won. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one. These are all the names of the kings who Joshua has destroyed. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. The king of Jarmuth, one. The king of Lachish, one. And we can read all of those and say, why are we going over all those again? Most of those kings have already been mentioned. Well, it reminded me of Psalm 136, which has this sort of repeating refrain, God's Steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 136 is a long psalm, but the first seven or so verses read like this. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, 
for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. On and on that psalm goes, repeating the great and mighty works of God. That repetition helps build up. These are all things that model the steadfast love of God. And here, the point is, all of these are victories. If God was to take on all of these kings, God has won one after the next, after the next, after the next. We do this. We, we know how this works. Listen, if, if Michigan or Michigan State goes undefeated this year, there's no doubt that you're, okay, that's, that guy, I thought I could get through that without laughing. If Michigan goes undefeated this year, there's a very good chance that, that people who are fans of Michigan will be able to recount every single victory they've had. It will be something that hasn't happened in 20 years now, right? And so we would be able to recount those victories. Why shouldn't Israel do the same on something that is vastly more important? Vastly more important. This is a way, again, of reminding them that God's promises are sure. We have all of these reminders and all of the celebrations that Israel has. And here, written in his word, is a reminder that not only did God promise you the land, but God gave you the land. Again, this is what the resurrection does for us. The resurrection is clearly there to make sure that we know that God's promises are sure because so many of God's promises have not come to fullness yet. The kingdom, even as we just got done talking about in Sunday school, is still coming. We still pray, let your kingdom come. It is not here yet. And so we pray and we wait and we pray and we wait and we know that because the resurrection has happened, that all of those promises that have happened to us are sure. It isn't enough enough that Jesus died. If he died and wasn't raised, you were still in your sins. If he died and wasn't raised, you have no guarantee that God cares for you or loves you. All you know is that a poor carpenter from Galilee died 2,000 years ago. That's it. But the fact that he was raised means that his life and his death have meaning that go far beyond, far beyond simply a life and a death of a normal human being. It means that his work on the cross was finished and full and final. It means that our forgiveness is assured. It means that our perfection in heaven and our own resurrection in new resurrection bodies is all but assured. We can rest on those things because he has raised Christ from the dead. God has not given us promises of his work among us so that we might simply rest there. He has promised us rest, and indeed there is rest, both that is accomplished for us and more rest that is coming. But often his promises ask not for us simply to rest in him, but for our greatest efforts. Providing us with the assurance and the value of our work and yielding greater courage to us. Soon, in just a moment, we will stand and sing of God's amazing act of grace in Jesus Christ that grace that has given us both freedom from our sin and freedom from God's wrath. This freedom is not a freedom from striving, however. It is not a freedom from work, but it is a freedom from its uselessness, its sinfulness, and its pride. God has promised us great things. Let us then trust fully in those promises. Let us pray. Father, you are good to us. The most immediate response we should always give to your word, the most immediate response we can always give to your promises is simply to trust in them, 
to have faith in the word that you have spoken to us. But let us never misplace the idea that trust does not call for our action as well. If we truly trust what you are saying, we will act upon it. Your promises often, often come to us in forms of that which you will do for us and you call for us to do as well. So many passages that we've read of have spoken not only of your grace, but of Paul, of Peter, of John working in your grace to do these things. Let us then trust in your word and act in accordance with that. Let us respond well to your promises. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.